Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and, and welcome try. to Call to Action The go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, business and beyond in an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp, and I'm Giles Edwards. Today, I've caught Liesl McDonald. Judging by the overriding sentiment and sheer volume of listener questions we've received, Liesl is probably our most popular guest to date. A total marketing pro, she has over 30 years of experience in the business, cutting her teeth in London with BT, Virgin and Ogilvy before her sense of adventure and curiosity took her to Asia to set up her own consultancy. Obsessed with interrogating ideas, she is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts and chairs judging panels for the prestigious MSS Star Awards. Liesl says, talk like you're writing copy, listen like you're doing market research. Welcome to the show, Liesl. Thank you, Giles. That's a wonderful introduction. It's lovely to be here. Awesome. Right. Seven quick fire questions. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Scotland or Thailand? Uh, Scotland. Music or marketing? Oh, man. Oh, that's... Musicating. Music for some of the day and marketing for the rest of it. Okay, we'll take that. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird or Memoirs of Hadrian? Oh, that's a really tough one. I think the Memoirs of Hadrian. Right, David Byrne or Rabbi Burns? Could I... I'd love to put um, each of them in my pocket and carry them with me everywhere. Yes. I think I'd probably have to go with um, David Burr. I thought you might. I thought you might. Well, we've got two more. Uh, Monopoly or League of Lexicon? League of Lexicon. Brilliant. And then finally, and quite ridiculously, your preferred Paul. RuPaul or Paul Feldwick? Oh, RuPaul. <laughs> That's the easiest one yet. I mean, I love Paul, Paul Feldwick, but just, you know, it's got to be RuPaul all day long, hasn't it? Thank you so much for joining us, Liesl. Lovely to be here. I'm here to mildly and respectfully subvert your model, I think. Well, you, you mention often about people who come into marketing in various ways, and I probably did it the other way. I came into marketing, you know, bunny ears the right way, and then was fled and pushed from it to do things my way, the only way that worked for me. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Okay. Well, as I mentioned in your intro and before we recorded, we have had a an incredible amount of listener questions uh, to wade through, and I've had to be quite brutal in whittling them down, but we still have a dozen of the dozens that landed. So I'm going to try and weave as many into the usual agenda as I can. I'm not going to do that to start with, though, because to start, as we always do, can you tell our listeners about... What happened at the beginning? What was your first ever job? And what was your first proper job in marketing? Because as you, as you alluded to, you kind of did it that perceived right way. Right. Well, my, my first job was, I, I, I have a very odd childhood, an odd upbringing, um, which is kind of, 
indicated in in my first job. Um, my life really is the simple story, that age-old story of a girl who was born in the US, raised in a tiny Scottish island by a single parent mum who worked three jobs so we could have holidays. I was raised in a cult. Um, when I worked, I was fired several times and I fled to the other side of the world, didn't return to the UK for 10 years, recovered from addiction, was diagnosed with a life-threatening condition a neurodiversity, um, started up my own company and have had incredible adventures. <laughs> wow, okay. I'm not sure which part of that falls under the right way <laughs> or the perceived right way. Usually people know bits about me, but not many people know the full story. So having grown up on this tiny island off the west coast of Scotland, I started off loving horses, but we couldn't afford a pony. So I used to work in the stable so I could ride other people's ponies and exercise them. But my first job for cash money was at the age of 13 in an ice cream cafe because I was saving up to buy a racing bike. Um, and that was the first one. But the second one was more interesting. When I got to about 17, I started working Saturdays and after school in the pharmacy and thus began my white coat and condoms phase of life. The white coats and condoms phase. Tell me more about that. You put on a white coat and people tell you everything. It's incredible. They treat you like it was, they would come in and tell you about rashes they had on places you just did not want to hear about. You knew who was in what medication or in it. You knew, you knew intimate details of, of people's medical conditions. It was a really interesting experience as well from a marketer's, a junior marketer, because you learned about merchandising and cross-selling. So we had this thing we used to do whenever we had products that we couldn't sell. So for example, really oldy sort of Yardley's English lavender soap, and it wasn't selling where it was in the store. So what we would do is we would find out where the condoms were and we would swap them on the display. And so you would see lots of young men coming in on Friday nights and Saturday nights, heading straight up to the counter, looking to where the condoms used to be and finding Yardley's old. <laughs> and you could see the look of panic when we waited. So they would buy the soap and then look into your eyes and not being a nasty person, I would sort of give them like, over there. And then they'd go and pick up the condoms and thus we'd be able to sell whatever we wanted to sell by just shifting them around with the condoms on a regular. That is genius. I, I've said this a few times before, I think on uh, past episodes, but I never forget I had the most amazing uh, lecturer when I was at Kingston University uh, at Knights Park called Chris Draper. And he taught us that if you wear a fluorescent jacket, you can go anywhere you like and no one challenges you. But I've never, I've never heard of the white coat alternative where people verbally, I suppose, will let you go anywhere. That's amazing. I love that. It, it was incredible. And then you, you mentioned that as a junior marketer, it was a good place to be in that pharmacy. And, uh, and I think there's, there's a few consistencies there. Uh, I'll never forget Phil Barden talking about his kind of frontline experience. And it's, it's probably one too few lack but presumably at that time and i'm making big assumptions here but at the age of 17 did you you didn't necessarily know that you were going to go into marketing as a career or am i wrong i had i had thought for the longest time that i would go to i was told you will go to university when i was young um and i went to um a careers day and they had to bring somebody off the island to come and give us advice and i was told i did tests and they said you're either going to be a lawyer or a journalist or a cult leader. And, and that's haunted me till this day. Wow. <laughs> and they said, I said, I wanted to study English literature and I wanted to study languages, but I was told that you have good grades in science and maths, 
why would you study the arts? Which was horrible, just an awful thing to say. There was a hierarchy. You studied, um, you were a doctor or you were a dentist or you were a lawyer. And then there was engineering and pure science. And right at the bottom, there was the liberal arts. And it was just appalling. However, business, the business school seemed to be a good combination of both. So I studied um, law and marketing jointly um, at Strathclyde University and ended up, it's four years in Scotland. So I ended up doing um, law and marketing for three years and then single honours in marketing because I decided that the law was not for me. Yeah, okay. There's parallels there with with with, with JP. I know. Um, obviously, turned his back on a, on a legal career. So, did you, whilst you were doing your studying and after those four years, were you then set and comfortable on on that as a career route? Um, I I, I had no idea actually um, what I was going to do. It was I loved the thing I loved about marketing. I didn't have an easy time at university. Not not, not academically. That was fine. But just personally, I was having quite a lot of personal issues. But the thing that changed it for me was I managed to get my final year dissertation sponsored through a friend who introduced me to a company. I was the only person in that year who got their dissertation sponsored. So all the primary research, they paid for it. And I got to spend um, a day in their office a week. And I think that really made me stand out in the milk ground. And so it came down to Kodak and BT in the end who were looking to recruit me. And... BT were the ones that I, I went with because there was a man who singularly changed my life. And I think so many people can point to one or two people in their lives, these enormous sort of pivot points in your life and how things are so different as a result of meeting them. And this gentleman um, picked me up for what was called their International Graduate uh, Management Fast Track Program. And they wanted Two people from the UK, two from France, two from Holland, etc. And I was one of the two people from the UK. Well, wow. and this was for BT specifically. It was BT just post privatisation. They flew me down to London and put me through all kinds of psychometric profiling, testing, all kinds of things. And I, they recruited a hundred people that year. Ninety-eight went into sales before they could move into marketing and two of us went straight into this amazing incredible program of learning oh wow is that something that they've consistently done since or was that a new program that they launched no it was something that they've done once i think uh, they had a belgian marketing director and you didn't have cms in those days um, and he wanted people who had what he considered to be the equivalent of an mba i just spoke at least one foreign language um, and he wanted to create this body of international marketers who could do fraud. You, they were going to be the management of the future for the business. But of he was marketing directors, he lasted, I don't know, two years. And then I think it was abandoned after that. So what did that look like then when you started that? Were you, I mean, were you, was it actually learning whilst you were doing or was it still very much training only? Yeah, it was learning while doing. So we were given some live projects. But we were sent to Ashridge and we did lots of courses. We did everything from finance, again, which I'd done some of at uni, but we did more. We did telecommunications engineering one and two so that we knew how the network worked. And we did a lot of theory, but what was really interesting and really smart is that they sent us on fuel visits. So we went out with installation engineers, with repair engineers. We went to work in shops and we went to B2B exhibitions to look at how major organizations were looking at telecoms and that was really eye-opening it made me very 
aware of the fact that being at the sharp end and meeting customers is the things that gives you insights into how strategies are actually enacted in practice and how it affects both people in the company and also your customers. So I so I'm, I must admit, I wasn't sure in which order your career had gone until we started researching for today. Um, but it's very interesting that you've gone from client to agency side, because I know that and I hear from people that they think that's probably the easier route than going agency to client side. So what is it about your next steps that took you to Ogilvy? Because I know you went by Virgin. Well, I... Well, I actually, I, I was in the BT strategy department as a job at the time, and I did a few, a couple of years there. And the, the path sort of went strategy department where we did the planning and budget process and we produced papers for the BT board. So we understood about ROI. We understood all of the measuring, the tracking and where the money came from, which was a fantastic skill as a marketer because you had that commercial slant. And what I observed was that the CMO actually didn't have control of all the marketing levers. Products and services marketing was owned by somebody else. Pricing was owned by finance. The channel was owned by the sales director and the promotional side was run by the customer communications unit. And it was in fact the customer communications unit that headhunted me from there to CCU. And that's how I ended up working in, well, probably it was probably the most exciting time because when I arrived in the CCU, a brief had just gone uh, called Reciprocated Confidences. It went out to pitch. Abbott Mead Vickers won it. With David Abbott coming up with the line, it's good to talk. And it was brilliant because the insight, so, you know, men are the break on social communication in those days. Women were the social glue. We weren't allowed to use price or baskets of pricing. So we had to grow the market for calls. I was a junior person there, but we did actually have strat strategists within the company. And so I was a, a strategist in the company writing briefs for parts of this fully integrated campaign. I was very junior. It's not down to me. Do not really want to overplay it, but it was just the best people. And we got seconded also into agencies. So I spent a little bit of time in Zenith with Millward Brown. I met Breitenberg, Steve Harrison, Rory, David Patterson, a little agency called Rini Kelly Campbell Rolf started up. We also went to fulfillment houses, photography buyers. And I guess that was the link between the client strategy side and the advertising side. Um, and it was such a great education. You could literally sit in Oswest Street, which is where the network was run and watch as the ads went out, you could watch the network light up with people making calls. Wow. Did you feel like you were in a really privileged position then? I mean, I granted listening back kind of retrospectively and hearing some of the names you mentioned there, it's obviously going to have that kind of shimmer to it that, that perhaps at the time it couldn't because these people haven't necessarily created, I suppose, their own fame, if you like. But did it, it must have felt really exciting regardless. I felt like I was working with the smartest people in London. And by simply keeping my eyes open, my ears open, you could not fail to actually learn a lot. Culturally, the industry had its issues, both on the client and the agency side. But in terms of thinking and ideas, it was a fabulous time to be to be working around that area. Uh, Create valued. We were testing everything because we had huge sample sizes. There was a real rigor about what was done and creativity really was something that people aspired to. We really wanted to do good work um, and there was lots of it about. 
Yeah, I mean, it's oh, it's almost depressing when you think about how much that might that might have changed. But I don't want to I don't want to bring the mood down. So tell me what happened next in terms of finding yourself agency side and 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 how different that may have felt. Well, I I actually sort of stumbled after that. If if I'm really honest, I mean, I I was I was promoted. I I loved the work that I was doing, but I hated the jobs and the culture that I did. So I did a few companies client agency side briefly and then on the client side to a couple of and I had good times and bad times so I mean I did fun things like I was part of an IPO um I ran a pitch for the telecoms regulator and it was JWT who won it um and I I broke a Cambridge University reasoning test which I'm still really proud of today um I had an agency try to bribe me during the pitch which I've never spoken about and I will never name it was shocking um, I was fired a couple of times, and one time I was fired, I woke up one Sunday morning and found my job advertised in the Sunday Times. And on the Monday, I was told, sorry, they'd forgotten to let me know. Oh, my words. There was good times and bad times. All of it, all of it was learning. But what I realized is that it wasn't working for me. I had 10 years working with great people, but I really hadn't found where I needed to be and be what I needed to be doing that was going to work for me and my skills. I'm I'm almost I'm almost concerned that we haven't allowed sufficient time for this episode. I've, I've, I've scribbled. If you could see my notes, I'm just going to think in the way to prove that you are there here. You can see my scrawlings. I've got everything from cults to neurodiversity to job ads to uh, just so many names scrawled down. And I'm just thinking, wow, this could go in any direction. And actually, I'm quite scared to ask. You, you describe your uh, your your move to Asia, which which came up not too long afterwards, and you describe it that it happened in a dramatic fashion. So, given you haven't described anything else to date as dramatic, I'm slightly concerned what what cuts the the mustard to be dramatic for you. Well, at the age of 31, I found myself. I I I, I was very fortunate in that I've always had people who've supported me and and backed me, and I've been very lucky and very grateful to the people who've done that. But when people were saying, look, we've got a job for you here or come here, go there, I, I decided I'd had enough and I needed some time out. So at the age of 31, I went backpacking because you didn't go backpacking when I was a student. And I spent a year and a half backpacking, but because I'd been working, I was the only backpacker with like ST Lauder sunblock and <laughs> I had a little bit of money, but I spent a year and a half doing that. Not long after I left, 9-11 happened. When I talked to people back in London, they said, budgets have been cut. We were previously doing the job of two people. We're now doing the job of three. And it made me think, you know what? I think I really do want to do something very different. So I did an analysis of where I would like to be. And I really analyzed it upside down and back to front. And I did weighted you know, variables and all sorts of stuff. Decided I would stay in Thailand for two years and learn Mandarin and then go and work in China. And I've been in Thailand ever since. Why? If you can, I don't know if you can even summarize that, but why Why have you been there ever since? It's a nice place to live. I got really interesting work, a variety of work. And I actually, without knowing the word portfolio career, had a portfolio career and it really suited me. Sailing, which I love. Um, I grew up on an island in which there were no cinemas or theatres or anything. So all we did was sail, ride horses, play tennis ride our bicycle there was nothing else to do so um I was able to sail and ride and uh I ended up I started off actually lecturing 
because I thought I, went, I worked at Amaha um, with TLIC at home, which is a university in Bangkok, and I thought it'd be a hotbed of intellectual debate. It was not. Um, I had this sort of idealized version of academia, and I'm sure many people who work in universities will be nodding here. But it was fantastic because I learned a lot from the students and um, was also involved in an exchange program with French um, University ISCA. And uh, on the side, as well as being a lecturer, I was doing some projects for OMD. Um, so people who knew me there had asked me if I would help them with some development on their media strategies uh, side. So helping their media strategists to understand concerns, the problems and the issues of senior level clients in order that every um, the answer to every brief isn't a huge calculator on the desk. And of course, there's like helping people really get under the teeth and under the skin of the issues that clients face. I got a few other roles and then I was told, you've got to set up a company because we can't raise purchase orders for an individual trader. And that's when I set up my company. Fantastic. There must have been so much to not only learn, but I suppose respond to and, and change to. The first list of questions I'm going to throw in at this point comes from Aidan Clifford, who says, what a career. It strikes me that Liesl was part of three mighty companies with British origin stories. I wonder how she had to change her working practices to succeed in Asia. That's a really good question. Um, I, I had, I mean, I, I really was a, went as a babe, really, in terms of how much I understood about working in the other side of the world. First thing is, um, Thailand was never a colony, and that was important to me. So it's untainted by British, French, Spanish, American um, history in that sense, and I love that. Not everyone speaks great English. I love that. So you feel that you're actually in an Asian country, and I, I really I think that that helped me in a lot of ways because I wasn't able to fall back on, well, this is how we do things over there which a lot of people do, and it's horrendous. I had to um, do a number of, of a number of hard, learning things the hard way and learning things the easy way. The students taught me a lot because I was their lecturer, so I was in a position of power. So they were gently educating me about how things happened there. So that was a privilege that I had. Um, but then with the clients, of course, it was different because the balance of power was different. So I had to learn patience, how to value silence and how to operate when you have a lack of control. And it was fascinating. I'm still learning. But, um, I'm a lot better than I was then. It's so interesting. I, I've always thought that, and this is maybe coming at it from a slightly different angle. I was talking to someone not long ago who had a, an agency in the UK and they were talking about relocating the agency to I think it was Australia and someone made the point that culturally of course there will be differences but the differences aren't as significant so if anything it should make it easier to to, to relocate but then the flip side of that to me is well if you're a you know a proper marketing agency to kind of use a term that we're I suppose using too much these days it's having that having that starting point of whatever you might call it market orientation or just knowing nothing it's probably quite refreshing to almost it be so apparent that you don't know anything about the existing culture and the people that you have to research and you have to understand that before you can make decisions. But did that is that what it felt like at all for you when you first started consulting there? 
it's a beginner's mind, Giles, isn't it? People laugh when you say that and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. But do you really get it? Do you really know what it means to approach something with a beginner's mind? I um, I agree. I think I think there's a couple of things. First is that people are not insects. And I do encourage people to look at, you know, if you know the population, the religion, the the industry, the language, the, the, you know, you can learn, book learn a lot culture and don't not do that that's great but people are not insects under the microscope and if you think of them like that the interaction that you have with them is something you're doing to them okay so i think i understand you so this is what i'm going to do to you in order to evoke a particular response and it's not really like that i think the biggest learning for me was that i am not the cultural baseline and we are terrible at that in north europe and north america in particular we're bad at it and English speakers are the worst as well. We lack listening and observation skills. Um, and so we, 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 we forget that we should start with ourselves. And, and I've got, I've, I did some research actually for, for an American company. I've got a couple of thousand data points on how different cultures feel about working with other cultures. And it's completely fascinating. What it taught me was start with yourself. So instead of saying, how am I going to work with these people in X country? So how am I going to appear to these people? What are they going to find difficult about me and the way I operate? What do I bring that might be a point of, of conflict or, or might be problematic for them rather than just examining them like insects out of the microscope? That makes a lot of sense. What type of, what type of uh, clients did you have when you first set up cons your consultancy then in Thailand? Um, one of the, well, OMD was a client, um, Amadeus was a client, um, I did a new product development process for them across the region, um, and that was really interesting because uh, I had to go to all the country managers, so, you know, Hong Kong, the Philippines, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, etc., and and try and get them to open up and, and, and trying to pick through global, regional, and local product, and what I found was uh, because I'd learned to speak Thai, I found that helped. So because I'd bothered to learn an Asian language, even though I would go to Hong Kong and I didn't speak Cantonese or Mandarin, I could literally see people's, the doors of their brain open up. And when people talk about, oh, but it's, you know, it's hard for us to learn. It is hard to learn, by the way, it's a nightmare. Asian language is a whole other level of difficulty. There's like five tones. 66 consonants and 22 flipping vowels. I mean, out. <laughs> I, I think that that very much helps because people think, okay, you don't speak my language, but you have bothered to go some way to understanding us. So I will listen to you. Other clues I had, I, I used to do a regular strategy for a hospital, a big international hospital group out there. I had a big American um, data company I worked with for 10 years and a whole bunch of different um, projects. Um, I did a regatta, I, I, the King's Cup regatta. I did some work for them. I almost got Rolex in as a sponsor, but just missed out because they changed the director, which was a shame. So a real variety of projects um, and also Nation Multimedia Group, Siam Cement, a whole, a whole bunch. Most of the clients had international, my actual client was an international um, per person. So they were maybe based in Asia, but they were foreign. Um, I have a few clients where it was somebody local who um, employed me. 
but I was lucky enough never have to do to have to do new business. All of my customers for the last twenty three years have all been through word of mouth, which doesn't happen if you're not good at what you do. Well, I think it also happens if what you do is quite difficult to describe. And and are there are there many parallels? And I don't want to force this question, but are there many parallels when you look at the industry? as you were in and practicing in there and, and the industry in the UK, because I want to ask you about what differences you kind of see nowadays in the current and, and versus past trajectory of marketing. But I have to be mindful that you're looking at it, you know, with this kind of hybrid cultural lens. I absolutely come to this as um, not not somebody who's an expert, like a lot of, I mean, I'm an intimately familiar outsider is absolutely how I come to this. So it's only my opinion. but. How it was in the past, Giles, it used to be, it was exciting. I mean, there was doing it, then how it's perceived and then the challenges that were faced. One of the things in the 90s was that um, accounting firms were moving to have consultancies and agencies very much should have moved into that space where they had the board's ear and they didn't. They, they, they failed to capitalize on owning a, a deeper part of client understanding and the client's business and actually sitting alongside them at a higher level where all the big consultancies did. By the way, almost all of my clients call me in when one of the big consultancies has failed. So, so along may they continue to do so. And so um, I would say that what would concern me about the industry now is the state of mind of the industry as much as the state of the industry. But that might be a Twitter phenomenon and a LinkedIn phenomenon. I don't know. I think state of mind actually a really nice way of articulating it because I think if you zoom in on some of the uh, smaller topics, I suppose within what someone might define as the, you know the state of something, even if you think about something as trivial as pitching, I say trivial. I don't mean to say that that trivialise that, but I, I find like the state of mind of a lot of agencies is that other people are to blame for the situation, not themselves, and and they perhaps don't look at themselves as being the route to the answer as much but maybe that's just uh maybe that's just my experience no i th i think you're absolutely right there's a lot of what you say there it's uh th there are there are different ways i guess that you could analyze the challenges that the industry faces in clients and the challenges that agencies face some of them are similar some of them are different i think for me i mean my clients always say to me that i'm passionate but with clear eyes and a level head and that's exactly what I think marketing is. It's an art and it's a science. And that's the thing I love about it is that bring this ability to do, you know, you, you use, we used to use semiotics back in the 90s, Bayesian techniques and loads and loads of, of econometric modeling. But on the other hand, you get to really try and understand how humans think and feel and do and the psychology of it. And that for me was the reason I didn't want to be a lawyer. Because why would you want to do that when you can have something where you use both sides of your brain? It is the best brain tickling exercise of all is to be in marketing. Yes, that to be fair, that is a perfect cue for a great question from Sandra Pickering. And and Sandra said, is marketing a real discipline or just a pretendy one? I love the word pretendy, incidentally. Uh, if real, I'd expect it to be rooted in depth of human understanding and science and to be clear, statistics, nay, science and marketing science can't just be statistics. I know, Sandra. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. I think it's a real discipline, but I think you then have to parse the words real and discipline in order to understand. 
or we something different to different people. I really think that it is about the perfect intersection of art and science. And I know I talked to Rory about this for decades and it, it's about in, increasing probabilities of success. And I know there's a lot of work that's been done by various eminent professors and I think it's fabulous. And I think marketers need to read and understand the the rigorous approach and you know, undoubted proofs that come out of that. But that doesn't help you be a marketer. You have to then go about and apply what it is that you've learned, read, observed, experienced, and apply that given a particular set of circumstances, which is not easily replicable from what it is that you've read or seen before, because it's different. It's different temporarily, it's different with the market, it's a different product, all different variables are in there. So I think it's great to learn the discipline of marketing, but if you're not using your own damned brain, then you're doomed to fail. When people say, oh, what would, you know, so-and-so think? Who cares? They're not here. The question is, what is it you've learned from these people and lots of other people that you can bring to bear and apply into the problem that you're trying to solve right now? Great answer. What do you think about the, um, if, if you feel like you've got a gauge on it, this is, on the current levels of training in the industry? Because, I mean, you, you talked at the beginning of this recording about all of the areas you were exposed to. I don't just mean, you know, in the pharmacy with your white coat, albeit I don't not mean that either because there's a lot of great experience there for a marketer. Uh, and also like the, the kind of empathy you must have had to have to succeed in another culture from learning the language to just understanding different kind of, um, I suppose, agendas and ways of doing business. There's so much there. So on one hand, I, I, I think that people learn so much from experience and from doing but on the other side of the fence, I also think that people need to be better trained. And I don't know if the current state, to use that word again, of marketers perhaps not being trained is consistent with how it might have been 20, 30 years ago. It's difficult. I don't know how the universities are teaching now, but I haven't, I've heard very mixed and sometimes quite negative um, feedback on that. I know there are a lot of institutions and professional bodies and individuals who are offering training and a lot of companies who are offering training. And I'm really not an either or person. I'm a, I'm a both person. Um, and I think that we need to stop sort of fetish, fetishizing and dumping things. Um, because I feel that, you know, you talk about identity politics and I feel like now we're sliding into identity marketing where it's like, I'm a digital marketer or I studied here or I did this. And it's all kind of like, okay, they're all fine. It's, it's not one or the other thing. Learn about as many things as you can in as many ways as you can. And the person who's responsible for learning is you. Nobody's, now everything's available online. You can attend courses online. You can read stuff online. And you can't actually go out. Steve Harrison always used to say to every junior copywriter, if you want to be a great copywriter and you're sitting at home watching the movies of Kurosawa, you're doing it wrong. You should be sitting listening to people warn about their finances in the supermarket yeah, there's lots of ways to do this yeah I, I i love steve as i'm sure you know i was actually going to ask you steve harrison or rory sutherland in the quick fires but i actually thought that was crossing the line slightly <laughs> unfair very unfair uh, but you're right you're right and you're right about the profiles in the industry i don't expect you to answer this one but i am keen to tick it off because um 
Speaking of another man that I that I admire hugely, Nick Ellis wrote, Byron Sharp is basically the same as Simon Sinek with elbow patches. Discuss. So I'm not uh <laughs> not necessarily asking you to to discuss, but you're talking about the personality. Yeah, I think I think my I think my colleague Giles Edwards would be happy to answer that question. <laughs> he would be. I think I, I actually think we're in a we're, one of the one of the things that I suppose I, I I struggle with in this industry is the people arguing about theory when they should just be practicing and doing and and we get so caught up in whether it's semantics or just the right way of describing a process or how to build a strategy rather than actually building a great strategy and showing people look there you go I did it and I, and, and it was effective. I'm totally with you, Jazz, and I really believe that I will listen to and read anyone and then form my opinion on how it fits with what I am trying to do. And I think that's the only adult way to look at it. I, I think we get distraction, abstraction, semantics. Uh, is it science? Is it art? Self-awareness, a lot of judginess, and also a lot of uniformity in the industry, thinking of everything. Um, and, and those are the things that we should be fighting, not each other. We're lovers, not fighters and all that sort of thing. You know, have a listen. I think it was um, Robert Burns always said, you know, see yourselves as others see us. And, and uh, to, to, to take it back to Asia, um, the Buddha said, you know, believe nothing. It doesn't matter who said it or where you read it. If Unless you think about it and it agrees with your own reason and common sense, then you should believe it. And I think I think that's very simple. It's very first principles. It's not simplistic. It's simple, but really hard to do. And going back to your point about bothism, I think just to use the two names that Nick Ellis mentioned there, Byron Sharp and Simon Sinek, I know from from running a small indie for 13 plus years now that often we do see, we do recruit very intelligent, capable graduates who have spent significant more times learning about the latter than they have the former so as you said it's not about one or the other it's about studying all and deciding um as you see fit but it, but i do think that is an is it is a reflection of universities um that isn't particular doesn't particularly bode well anyway um mel barfield who's particularly excited about this episode uh, she said and i'm hoping this kind of leans into another uh, topic that we can get into before we go to our official listener questions but mel said i'll leave the clever bastard marketing questions to the clever bastard marketers and ask her, what's your experience been like as a woman in the industry? And why slash how has it inspired you to support other women? Mel, you are um, asking exactly the right question. My experience as a woman in the industry has been, um, I mean, looking back on it, I'm really um, sad for me when I was younger because I put up with a lot of things that I shouldn't have put up with. Um, and I think that still goes on. My experience as a woman, I have had, I've been, I've been in situations, for example, let me give you one. We were going along to an awards show and I was on the client side and I was the only woman going and a limousine turned up from the agency to take us there, but there were um, hookers in it. And so I was told that I had to get a cab because the guys were going on the limo with the hookers. Oh my God. True story. It has been difficult to find a voice and I've always looked up to people, um, a good friend of mine is M.T. Rainey from Rainey Kelly. And I, I look up to people like, you know, Cindy and, and, and people like that who are able to be powerful. You know, and Amy Keane now and Zoe Scalman and just look at the, the, the nonsense that they get and just think, why? Why? Um, you know, misogyny is not hard to, to, to see, guys. Just be better. 
be better. So I, I'm really keen that talented young people like Mel get the support that they need, not just from women, but also from, from guys like yourself, Giles, who are speaking up for people who have, don't have certain types of privilege. Um, and it's one of the reasons I agreed to come on your show, visibility for older chicks. Yeah, brilliant. Well said. I'm pleased you, you called out Amy and, and Zoe too, because again, um, I think there's people who might disagree with people's views on something. And I think that, that it's fair to, to do so, but I think it's, it's how you respond and how you react and how you kind of or don't react appropriately that, that tends to be the issue. And sadly, that doesn't seem to um, be in any better position today. Sorry, girls. I, just, I was just going to say, it, it really, really, it makes me wish something dearly because, you know, I, I, I'm one of these people who I can, I'm quite good at finding what the issues are in an organization and also the opportunities and finding seven ways to solve them. I'm not being negative. I'm just trying to find out how to make things better. Understanding how things work is important, but understanding how things might work is where the magic lies. And one of the things that I'm really interested in in the industry, and I'm trying to look at it myself, is you know, people talk about why are there no senior level, why is marketing not on the board? How do we get into the board? How do we get into CEO? And I think if you take marketing, it's just a thought, if you take marketing out of the marketing department, take the doing out of the job title and the capital M out of it, get marketers on board as non-exec directors. Why are non-exec directors all lawyers and people who used to run um, funds, you know, fund managers. Why not get marketers on boards more? In particular, get women and black folk and disabled people because we're not running anything else because no one, no one gives us the job. Well, you know, we've worked in regulated industries like telecom and financial services and all the different clients that you work on. Getting into that senior position requires showing a degree of maturity. But wouldn't it be wonderful if marketers were sought in other fields because they brought a valued perspective? Imagine a marketer as a cabinet minister or a prime minister or a first minister. Imagine if in public life people said, get me a marketer for this. Because we're bringing that lens to it that other professions bring. And for me, that would be a definition of success. And I mean, there's, there's lots of people who kind of echo a similar sentiment about the position that, that I suppose the industry is in um, and none seem to do it as consistently or as cuttingly as Tom Lewis. Anyway, Tom knows I admire him hugely and we agree on many things but Tom has, has thrown this question at you Liesl. Is Adland really toxic and what's your favourite type of poured concrete? So you, you can answer one or both of those. Well I'll go to him privately in the DMs for the poured concrete. <laughs> architect fans. Thank you Tom. Yeah, I think, I think um, marketing has an integrity issue and we need to do more work. We act on our beliefs and what we believe is true, but there's a gap between what we say, how we'd like to be seen, and then how we actually go about our life and our work. We think we're geniuses, but nobody else is saying that because we lack integrity at times as an industry, as clients, as agencies, and as individuals. So for example, People are not watching adverts as much as they used to, or they, they say they, they don't like them or enjoy them in comparison to how they used to be. Let's not look back at the Haiti. Let's look at how imagine what could be. 
You say we're saving the planet. Everybody knows we're not saving the planet. So let's let's look at that and say, what could be? We're not dealing with diversity. Uh, what could be? Imagine if we stopped talking about or featuring people in our ads. Imagine if di- disabled people were actually writing the scripts, um, you know, doing the camera work, working in agencies. And the problem is this lack of integrity is because there's no jeopardy, Giles. There's no je- jeopardy. People say, now Derek Walker, who love Derek, Derek talks about, you know, hiring what agencies, black-owned agencies, proper briefs, not just the sneaker briefs. I would take it farther and I would say, if you're really serious about it, why don't you go work in a black-owned agency or an old woman agency or an Asian agency? Try being the only white person, the only man or the only person in the room. There's jeopardy there. If you're employing people, they work for you. People, you're in a position of power. Do it with jeopardy. It will make you different from other people. That was my experience. It made me really different in what I bring to what I do. So deal with deal with integrity. Do things with integrity. Push the boundaries. We're marketing people. We're supposed to be creative about how we do it. It's not signing up to a pledge. It's not an initiative with a capital I. It is doing something different in order to get over this toxic way of doing things. Um, and also maybe more money, Tom, at the same time, which I know you care passionately about. Yes, yes, he does. He does. You're all well said. Is that Bluebell we can hear in the background? I'm so sorry. Do, do, do you have to do that again? <laughs> no, not at all. No, no, no. It's, it's a family-inclusive show, I hope, so it's nice to hear Bluebell having fun out there. I'll tell you what, Charles, if you take it one step farther, why don't we give currently current... Um, company, agency, and organization leaders a year sabbatical. Go spend time with families. They can go spend time doing whatever their hobbies are and let other people run the industry for a year. It won't collapse. It'll be different at the end of it. Try it. Why not? It's only half kidding, actually. I've never doubted anything less. <laughs> Again, I don't want to force a comparison here, but just the your point about there being no jeopardy, I wonder if that's something that you can say with the empathy that I expect from you <laughs> from this conversation as being someone who has moved to a different continent altogether and stood out. Not that you needed more examples or uh, opportunities to stand out um, or, or feel like that, you know, you were, you were just one amongst many others. But I, but I do I do feel like that maybe that's just a, a wisdom that comes through life experiences that you just only wish you could force on other people. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit of both. I think there is something about having seen... Th- I mean, I, I love to get excited about new things, Giles. I, I get really passionate and excited when I see something new. I do think it is not that often that I'm seeing something new. If you've been around a while... Um, you, you wait for something new or something slightly different. I think there's a good opportunity for pulling together different things. You know, I'm all for synthesizing lots of different things. I, I read about five books a week personally because that's part of my neurodiversity and it drives my husband mad. But, but reading different things is just one way of bringing different perspectives. There's lots of things that you can do that will broaden your frame of reference, but you choose them. 
What is interesting is where you're in situations where you're not choosing, where that's being chosen for you. And that's where you get these amazing sort of enlightened moments of, oh gosh, I never would have seen it that way because you're forced into that uncomfortable space, because there's jeopardy, because you're looking at something, you're forced to look at it through other people's eyes and you're experiencing something you've never experienced before. When was the last time we could say we're experiencing something we've never experienced before? Go make it happen. I've snuck a few in already, but I feel like we should go to the official listener questions question section now. Boom! <clears throat> Sorry, it's just most podcasts would drop a jarring advert into this vacuous point in space and time. But Gasp don't do podcast ads. And if we did, we'd probably subvert the form in a clever way that ironically gets you to contact the host at giles at gasp.agency. Only last week, some pod listening companies did just that, calling us for guidance on strategy, research and brand positioning. But please don't do that. Let's get you back to the show. And it's probably the world's simplest idea. I call it the golden circle. Yeah, golden shower, more like. You don't want Simon Sinek, you want a proper marketing chat, don't you? Hang on. Uh, so asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. So I'm going to try and get the other few in now. I'm going to start with a good friend of yours and um, someone we've had on the show a couple of times, the great Rory Sutherland. Uh, Rory asks, what are the specific marketing challenges of being a marketer in an organization dominated by engineers? Gosh, that goes back to the BT days, but it's just a relevant layer. Back in those days, um, we talk about the marketing orientation. You know, it's all about Philip Kotler back. In, I mean, it was said before then, and marketing's been around for a long, long time. Not not just in the 20s, but like when people were out selling stuff uh, in the Agora of whatever. Uh, and so the marketing orientation was about looking through things through the consumer's eyes. And when you work for a company which has a lot of engineers, in those days, you would people would say, "What does marketing do?" And you would say, "Well, we, you know, we look at the products, we look at the channels, we look at the pricing, we look at the, the promotion, the communication, how people, how things are explained to people, and we try and help, you know, consumers to be able to buy and and repurchase our products and services." And they would say, "Isn't that the whole business?" And you would be like, "No, we're bringing a lens to it. You know, we we work with other parts of the organisation and bring a particular lens to it. So we're not expert." in this particular thing. We don't know the details of the gubbins, but what we can do is bring a consumer perspective and ask questions that consumers might have or pick up things that consumers might have a problem with or look at opportunities to make it easier for consumers to buy it or buy more of it or buy it more frequently. And in those days, it was trying to explain to people what marketing was. I think it's different now because there's this kind of atomization of marketing. So you know, people talk about advertising, marketing, digital marketing, branding, all kind of synonymously, and it's all guddled and confused. So I think now the problem is um, defining what marketing is in an age of atomization, which is a problem and an, an opportunity. Because there are so many different specializations now in ways of looking at things, again, if you can synthesize all of the different parts of marketing into a strategy which is brilliant whether you're an, on, an entrepreneur a startup 
or whether you work for a large organization, or whether you're an agency looking at a new way of getting into a brief, there's opportunity in there because you do see it differently from the engineers and the tech people and the people who are building the SAS model. It's looking at it differently. Yeah, well said. There's, you're right about the, um, I suppose, all the ambiguity and semantics and people talking about terms interchangeably. I mean, it's, it, 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 can't, it can't help any industry to have that level of confusion. The second question, there's, there's, um, there's a consistency between Philip Oakley and uh, Julio Del Buffalo or Jimmy Bison to you and I. Um, it's a question, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask them both because the consistency seems to be around the egos and and arrogance that can kind of appear all too frequently in our industry. So starting with with our friend Jimmy. He says, my question is, how do you bring empathy and kindness to an industry where arrogance and macho vibes still rule? And if you're able to hold that question for one second, Philip Oakley says, as a consultant, how do you wrangle in leadership egos and gatekeeper fear to accomplish what's best for the business? So I think they're consistently talking about managing ego and fear, really, aren't they? Yes, and I would say that all I can do is answer that question from what I bring to it. So while we've talked about the difficulties for women in the industry, sometimes being a woman can be a positive advantage because we're seen as being less of a threat. So where you're dealing in a culture where it's a very macho culture, either in that country or region or that organization, being a woman can sometimes help because you're not perceived as a threat. When you're foreign as well, um, people expect you to be a bit weird and so you can get away with asking questions because you're weird and that wrong. And foreigners are, you know, foreigners are just weird. So like, oh my gosh. So, um, <laughs> but ultimately it comes down to, um, I mean, there is a, there's always a cultural component, whether it's a company culture or a, or, or, or a linguistic or a, or a, or a, a cultural culture, but it really comes down to listening. And I think the more you're listening and the more you're seeming to be listening, the more people open up. I think the more you understand the cast that you're dealing with. So you've always got your advocates, your skeptics, your provocateurs, your saboteurs, the person who actually knows who's happening, what's happening, who's very often not the most senior person, and the person who has great ideas, but they're always shut down. And, and if you can identify those people, they're hugely helpful. I think any consultant or any account manager will tell you that. Have small asks in order to do that. So ask people for things, for small things up front and you very quickly find out who is in that cast and who's actually going to be able to support you. But I think top level support is what you really need. Give wins for people who need to get it sold in and get it done. But make sure that the people that have the influence have bought in. Otherwise, it's a waste of time. I love that point about the cultural components that exist in everything. Yeah, it's there whether, I mean, even within, you know, just every organization has its own norms, its own values, its own, you know, this is how it's done. Uh, so, Lisa, well, the final part of the interview is our four pertinent poses, starting with what advice would you give to your younger self? I must say, before you answer that, I, I feel like, I feel not only obliged, but I feel like I want to share a comment we had on LinkedIn from Tina Matembe. I hope I've said your surname correctly there. Apologies if not. Who just wanted to say, how are you so awesome and cool? 
Um, <laughs> we had we had uh, we had so many nice comments. It's always nice to hear nice things about yourself. Um, apparently, <laughs> I know, and that's lovely. Tina's wonderful. She's a fantastic entrepreneur, um, and uh, yeah, that's very kind of her um, to say that. Um, very generous. Okay, you asked me about um, what advice would I give to my younger self? It would be this. You don't, you won't, and you can't fit in. But it will be the making of you and life will be extraordinary as a result. Very, very powerful. Brilliant. Number two, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Complacency. I call myself the big red button. If you if you if you want to change something, I solve oddly shaped problems in marketing and commerce. And, and I always call myself the big red button because I'm, I believe in positive provocation. Um, and people who like and seek positive provocation, I've seen thrive. People who are complacent are a danger to themselves and to the rest of us. So out with complacency, down with that sort of thing. Amazing. We've never had complacency as the thing to banish. That's wonderful. I love the big red button. Brilliant. Um, I suspect you'll have a whole list here. Any books that you can recommend to our listeners? I do. I mean, I would recommend all of the normal. I mean, I'm not going to name the books that everyone's already named. You know, the the you know Rory's books, the Steve's, that Byron's book, all those. Books. I mean, I, let's take that as read. What I encourage people to do is to read a, a mixture of things. I mean, obviously, clearly, the industry bible is Delusions of Grandeur by Ryan. <laughs> a bit louder for the people at the back perfect <laughs> and yeah and tune in soon for the next the next installment of your collaboration um, i would recommend um a couple of things i would recommend um alistair thompson has written a brilliant book about business planning and it's just so nicely done and i think whether you're in a client or an agency have a read of it because it really makes you sit down and ask questions about your own business model I would recommend that people read a book on nonviolent communication, A Language of Life by Marshall B. Rosenberg, so that you can stop um, being communicating violently. The most violent communication that happened to me was some, somebody came into the room, a senior guy came into the room, and he shouted at me and he said, why has nobody told you this? And I was like, what? Why has nobody told me what? What are you shouting at me? So I think nonviolent communication is a great thing and skill. Why has nobody told you this? Okay. Um, so what would the second thing? The third thing would be read something about logic and syllogisms and statistics. I don't have a specific book, but test your brain out that way. And then I would be happy to give you a short list of um, fiction, which I think you should read. One of which would be Hex by Jenny Fagan. I would recommend... Um, on Connection by Kay Tempest, which is brilliant. And The Three-Body Problem by Liu Xixian um, is fantastic. Perfect. Read also case studies, like there's TMB, is Bank in Thailand. There's a fantastic case study. Read case studies that are not the traditional case studies as well. There's a guy called Bun Tak Charun, Wong Charun in TMB, who did this transformative project, and he's a CEO, but one of the most brilliant marketers I've ever met. Um, so try and find case studies out with the normal IPA work, which which are great, 
but try and find other case studies and see how it's done elsewhere. So try and read really broadly. Always loads there. So thank you for the delusions, Nod. Alistair Thompson's How to Build a Better Business Plan. I'll second that recommendation. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, I forget the name of his other, but I'm sure he's got more than one out now, in fact. Cashful. It's about cashful. Ah, that's right. Yes, 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 yes. We'll link to both of Alistair's books. Any book on logic and, and statistics, Hex, On Connection, The Free Body Problem, and um, case studies from your non-standard sources. If you've got any, any you can include case studies or any links you can send, we'll include those on the description, Lisa. I do, actually. I was talking to Aggie um, in Thailand yesterday, and I was talking to him about this, and um, I can get some links from him to um, those case studies. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Really appreciate that. Um, and then number four, we always dedicate every episode to, stump, to someone, and we bestow or hospital pass that honour to our guest who has to give their reason why. So would you do the honours? I would dedicate this to um, all the... I mean, obviously my husband and my dog, Bluebell, Sarah Sondir, as they say, but um, all the people internationally who've welcomed me into their lives, their homes and their businesses, and, and they've kind of left me better informed and more aware as a person. Um, as a result of their friendship and advice. So Claude in France, Vibrani in Thailand, Takeda-san in Tokyo, and Nina Gupta in Delhi. I would actually add, um, at the side, I would add Derek Walker and a guy called Barrington Reeds in Glasgow, who's only the, always the only black guy in the room and he's doing extraordinary things and I wish people would take more notice because he's really talented. Brilliant. Well, this episode is very proudly dedicated. Thank you so much, Liesl. Everyone listening, we will have all of the links, including those case studies that Lisa mentioned uh, on this episode's listing. Uh, how else can our listeners get more Lisa McDonald? You can hit me up on LinkedIn um, and ask me to do lots of things. Um, and if I can, I will. I'm your red button. Hit it. That's the best way to get in touch with me at the moment. Um, I'm also co-writing a book at the moment um, on an element of startups and scale-ups with a very learned finance guru that you may know, Giles, from <laughs> that. So we'll also have a book out in the next uh, several months. Oh, fantastic. Well, keep us informed on that and we will retrospectively add it to this listing too because people find these at all sorts of times of uh, of the year. Uh, but Lisa, well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been it's been a real pleasure um, and I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I think you're awesome. And I'm not surprised we had so many people say as much on their listening questions. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a real privilege um, to be here. And uh, thank you for being kind to me as well. <laughs> not so. Finally, thank you to everyone listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep your questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find GASP online or email call to action at gasp.agency. Try and I try and I try.